Tonight we're going to talk about the forever life. The forever life. It's the, it's the thing that's coming after we die. It's the thing that's coming forever after we die. We don't like thinking about death at all. Um, we'd rather think about happy thoughts and life and joy and peace and all of that. Um, but death is it's a reality. And so we've got to talk about it. But we're going to talk about it through looking at the forever life. Think with me for just a minute about the place that you want to go. Uh, more than anything, the, the place uh, that you long to visit. It doesn't even have to be a real place. Just that, that imaginative space, that imaginative place that contains what you hope to be true even now, what you certainly would hope to be true in the future. Um, when I was growing up, that, that place, that imaginative place was my mom's closet. That's a very weird thing to say out loud. Uh, <laughs> get those words back. The reason my mom's closet was exciting is because every year around Christmas time, uh, all the gifts would be in there. And because they knew that we knew the gifts were in there, my mom's closet was locked. And so it was um, like we never could go in there. So it held this imaginative realm for me because that's where joy was. That's where the presents were. Um, that's where I wanted to be. In high school, starting in high school, I began to play golf. And so the imaginative place for me for many years was Augusta National Golf Club in Augusta, Georgia, home of this week's and every year's Masters Golf Tournament. For 90% of y'all, you're just like, uh, what are you talking about? For the other 10%, you get it. Um, it's a place of beauty, of grandeur, of excellence, perfection even. Um, when I was an intern with RUF at Vanderbilt, I got to go because that's the kind of people who go to school at Vanderbilt. <laughs> they, they belong to this golf club. And so it was amazing. So I had to long for something different. In uh, married life, I turned 36 tomorrow. That is old. Um, yeah, woo. And, uh, you know, the thing I long for at this stage of life is peace and quiet. <laughs> like serene beaches with my wife next to me and a fruity drink and a book and waves and peace and quiet. So, like, I love my children, but, you know, like, I want it to be quiet and still. Like, that's that place for me. What captures your imagination? What, what do you long for? What's that place for you? This passage, it's kind of a collection of passages tonight. It talks about that place in the Bible. It, it talks about the Bible's vision, Jesus' picture of what that place is going to be like. And it's better than we can imagine. It's beyond your wildest expectations. We talked about it for the last few weeks. I'd encourage you to listen to the podcast if you haven't. Tonight we're going to round out um, what we talk about and, and what we're looking forward to for those of you who are in Christ. Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 11 through 12. Then we're going to skip around to chapter 21, 22. I'm not going to read it all. I'm not going to read the whole chapters, but we're going to skip around. Here we go. God's Word. Then I saw a great white throne and Him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. 
Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And on the east three gates, and on the north three gates, on the south three gates, on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, and its gates and walls... The city lies foursquare, its length the same as its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, jacinth, help me out jewelers, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the midst of the, of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in each month. The leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. Then they will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. 
I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let those who hear say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. This is God's word for us. This is how it ends. This is how it ends. This is the forever life. What is in that forever life? Three things we're going to see tonight. Uh, First, we're going to see the city of life. Second, the tree of life. And lastly, we're going to see the book of life. The city of life. When Jesus gives the Apostle John this vision... Uh, Remember, John is writing this letter. He's directed to write this letter to the 12 churches, the seven churches, excuse me, of Asia Minor. And he's writing this letter to them to encourage them, to encourage them to hold the faith, to keep the faith that Jesus is worth it in the midst of tremendous persecution. They were being killed for trusting in Jesus and calling Jesus Lord instead of Caesar Lord. So he's writing this to encourage them. And as he, he gives them this last vision, this final vision of what glory, of what heaven, what a new heaven, new earth will be like. He says it's like a city. It's a city coming down of heaven, out of heaven, the new Jerusalem, he says. What about this new city, the city of life? First thing we see about it is that it is a fulfillment. It is a fulfillment of creation's intention. What do I mean by that? We're not going to go back to Genesis and reread it all. I talk about Genesis a lot because in order to understand Revelation and where it's going, it's helpful to understand Genesis and where it began. So in Genesis, we get this picture of God's creation of the world. The Bible is unapologetic about that. It says that God created in the world. In the beginning was God and he did it. He made the world. And then he put humanity, he put humankind into that world. And he didn't just go say, have fun, though that was certainly an aspect of it. He gave them a mission. He gave them purpose in that world. And his purpose, as he placed them in the garden, was to cultivate it. Now, what that word means is take dominion over it, rule over it. All the raw materials are here. There's food. There's natural resources. There's flowers. There's plants. There's everything that you need. Go make it into something beautiful and populated. Right? Have lots of sex. Make lots of babies. Let your babies' babies have babies. Just that's what it is. God was saying, make this garden into a city. A worldwide expanse of God's presence as it's borne out in his image bearers, people. Right? And scholars are in unison. It's hard to agree on much in the book of Revelation, but scholars look at this picture of a new city and say this is a fulfillment of what God had originally called Adam and Eve to do. Okay? They were to, to bring culture and life and technology and work and all of that stuff to it. So from Genesis to Revelation, you have the flow from a garden to a city. From a garden to a city. But what is interesting and, and sad and awful is that after Genesis chapter 2, after they get these 
this command from God to go make the world into a city, as we might call it. Adam and Eve, as we know, rebelled against God and they said, we don't want to do what you've called us to do. We want to do what we want to do. And so from Genesis 3 until Revelation 21 and 22, cities almost all the time in the Bible are looked at through a negative light. Looked at negatively. They're a place of violence, of wickedness. Um, Just a few examples. Cain, in, in Genesis 4, right after Genesis 3 in the fall, in Genesis 4, Cain kills Abel. And runs off to hide from God in a city. Uh, Humanity, just a few chapters later in in Genesis 11. Humanity sought um, to rebel against God's desire for them to spread out. And at the Tower of Babel, humanity comes together and tries to build a tower to God. They're trying to make their way to God on their own. It was a city. It was Babel. It was a city. And then in Revelation, as we've already seen... The great rebellion against God is portrayed as a city, the city of Babylon, called the harlot. Because she sought, as as a place, as an ideology, sought to lure people away from God and His love. The city of Babylon, the harlot, was offering us other lovers. So this, this image of a city has been negative, but here at the end... It's redeemed. That the new heaven and the new earth is pictured as a city. But notice there's something so amazing about this. Look back in verse 10. What does it tell us about this city? Where is it coming from? Down out of heaven from God. Look, y'all. We didn't, we don't make this city. We messed up the chance to make the world beautiful on our own. God doesn't. He he is the redeemer of this world. He created it in the beginning. And he's the one who has to recreate it in the end. We can't do it. It is now his gift to us. It's coming down out of heaven from God. Uh, One scholar, a guy named Daryl Johnson, says it this way. We humans did not form the first creation, and we do not form the new creation. The new city is God's doing, His work, His gift, something we could never conceive or build ourselves. And that's accurate, because as we just read the description of it, it, it's mind-blowing in its capacity, in its beauty, in its dimension. It's otherworldly, and it truly is. It comes out of heaven from God. So there it is. It's fulfillment of creation, but it's also beautiful beyond imagination. Have you ever seen something that really that words just could not describe? I've heard that the Grand Canyon is that way, um, just in its immensity, its vastness, its colors, its beauty. Uh, my wife is that way. Good grief! Look, I mean, just beautiful beyond description. Um. <laughs> What, like, what defies your, your words for you? Niagara Falls, maybe it's somewhere abroad that you visited with family. John is essentially, he's almost speechless at this. I mean, he's reaching for words to describe how beautiful it is. It's radiant and bright. God is there and it's laden with these precious jewels and metals. The streets are of gold. That's amazing, y'all. The streets are of gold. 
What about the homes? What about the art? What about the inside of the houses? What about the bathrooms? What about the kitchens? It's going to be immensely beautiful. Um, That really is only understood in backdrop to what most city streets are like. Um, I I studied, I didn't study abroad, but after my sophomore year of college, I went to Granada, Spain. And Granada is, it's not a city like New York, but it's a pretty good sized city. Um, And we stayed, I'm from small town, I never like stayed in a city, but we stayed in the interior of Granada in this hostel. And man, it was cool because you were close to everything and there was universities and fountains and, and little cafes. I mean, it was, just, it was really neat. But the smells were unbelievably bad. Like, nast, nasty. Um, cobblestone streets, so like this stuff would just get in the crevices and I guess would be there for thousands of years. That's how bad it smelled. <laughs> the sewers were just right there, like under your window. And so if you've never smelled like city smell, it, it won't make sense. But the moment you smell it, you know, like, oh, that... I'll never forget that. And from time to time, I'll actually catch a whiff of something, and I'm transported back to Granada's thing. It is, it's crazy. Streets of gold. No pollution. He says it's like glass. It's so clean. It's so perfect. It's so unimaginable. The beauty is overwhelming. But did you see the dimension to this place? The dimension and the intentionality with which John talks about it. Look at it right there. Um, I I hope that by now, in the book of Revelation, if you've been coming or paying attention or coming off and on, you've heard me say a thousand times, not only is there lots of imagery in here, but also numbers matter. Numbers matter. Now, numbers aren't always to be taken literalistically. And so sometimes we see the number uh, seven. And in the Bible, seven is a number of completion. Sometimes we see the number three, and that's kind of another mark of completion because of the Trinity. Sometimes we see the numbers 100 and 1,000, which were kind of a multiplier in the Bible. Just to say it's bigger than you can imagine. It's a thousand times bigger. Here, we see the number 12 a lot. What is 12? In the Bible, 12 is also a number of completion. In the Old Testament, uh, Jacob had 12 sons. Jacob's name was also Israel. These sons became the 12 nations of Israel. And that was uh, symbolic of the whole Old Testament people of God. And then you get to the New Testament. Jesus has 12 apostles, 12 main people. That is symbolic of the New Testament people of God. And so as you look down through here, there's 12 gates and 12 angels at those gates and 12 foundations to the walls. And on those foundations, there were 12 names of the 12 apostles The city is cubed, 12,000 stadia by 12,000 stadia by 12,000 stadia. There are 12s everywhere. Now, some translations of the Bible kind of take this, especially like the stadia and the cubits and all this stuff, they take it um, into, or cubits, not stadia, they take it and put it in English terms, but it misses the force of it. Because 12,000 is the number 12, it's this complete size to a multiple of a thousand. Times one thousand. It's bigger than you can imagine. Now in, in terms, in English terms, or in a standard measurement, it's 1,500 miles wide by 1,500 miles long by 1,500 miles high. 
Earlier in Revelation chapter 5, Jesus gives John this vision of what it's going to be like around the throne. And, and John says, it was a multitude greater than I can imagine. For people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. And he's saying, I just, it, it's too many people. And so the question is, well, where are all these people going to be forever? Like, what kind of house can hold them? And here we see it. The city is massive. 1,500 miles, just as far as you can see, as far as you can imagine, by as far as you can imagine, by as far as you can imagine, it's this huge sphere of people. Why is it a cube? Why is it Jerusalem? Why is it a cube? This is amazing. If you're from Tulsa uh, and you ventured out much at all, you know that um, George Kaiser Family Foundation is a big deal in Tulsa. Uh, the George Kaiser Family Foundation is, uh, well, George Kaiser is a very, very wealthy man. <laughs> he is worth, at last check, at 545 today, he is worth $10 billion. Um, he owns the Bank of Oklahoma, Bank of Texas, Bank of Arkansas, Bank of New Mexico, Bank of Colorado. He owns a lot of banks. Um, but his real money, if that's not real money, his real money is from Kaiser Francis Oil Company. And so um, George Kaiser is not only a very rich man, he is a very kind man, very generous man. And, and he gave the money actually to renovate Tyrrell Hall about five years ago. And he also in 2014 uh, gave the seed money of $200 million dollars. Uh, to construct the single largest privately funded park in American history right over there on the, on the Arkansas River. It's going to be called the Gathering Place of Tulsa. Or the Gathering Place for Tulsa. It's a clunky name, but it's really interesting. Um, in the Tulsa World, which is the T Tulsa newspaper, was interviewing him. He is not a spotlight kind of guy. Um, I worked at Bank of Oklahoma for three years. I saw him once. He just stays out of the spotlight. But they got an interview with him after uh, the announcement came out about him donating all this money for that part. And they were just kind of you know, saying, why this and why the name? Why the name Gathering Place for Tulsa? And he said this. I give money to places where people gather. Pretty descriptive name then. The Gathering Place for Tulsa. He gives money to places where people congregate, like this room, like Guthrie Green, which he also paid for, like all of the art development downtown, the new art buildings and museums, those are largely because of him and his foundation, like the gathering place for Tulsa, because a place where people can gather and live and smile and run and enjoy each other and enjoy the creation that stuff matters. And the vision here of this city is that it is that as far as your mind can go. 12,000 by 12,000 by 12,000. Why the cube though? Why, why this spherical uh, picture? Well, in the Bible, after Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve rebelled against God... God sends them out of the garden. He, he literally sends them out from His presence. And we're going to read more about this in a second. 
And so the, the question of the Bible after Genesis 3 is, how can man be back in God's presence? We talked about last week, how can we get the face of God again? Because we lose His face after the garden. How do we get His face? How can we be with Him? In the Old Testament, we start getting these these little pictures of how that's going to be. And one of the biggest pictures we get is through the tabernacle. And in the tabernacle, God comes and meets with His people in this certain part of the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies. And then the tabernacle was, was Israel's place where God met with them when they were traveling and nomads. But when they, when they became a place, when they became a nation, that tabernacle thing became the temple in Jerusalem. And in the temple, the middle of the temple was this place called the Holy of Holies. It shows up again. And if you would read the Old Testament and the, the description and the measurements of the Holy of Holies... When it was in the tabernacle and traveling, it was 10 cubits by 10 cubits by 10 cubits. And then when it gets to the, when it gets to the, the, the temple and it becomes a more permanent place in Solomon's temple, it becomes 15 cubits by 15 cubits by 15 cubits. It's a cube. It's a room that inhabits God. God inhabits it. And in the new Jerusalem, the new city... God's habitation is not 10 or 15 cubits. It's 12,000 by 12,000 by 12,000. What's the picture? God is there. He is there in His fullness. And He's there forever. He's never going anywhere else. This new heaven and this new earth, Jerusalem, is the fulfillment of what God intended in the garden. He longed to be with His people. And he's going to be with his people forever one day in the new temple, the new Jerusalem, the new city. So what? What does that mean for us? What, what in the world does that mean for you as a college student in Tulsa? It means that you were created by God for God. You were created by him to be with him. You were created to have his face. You're created to be with Him intimately, for Him to know you, and for you to know His love, and for you not to be scared of that. You were created for enjoyment that no drug can touch, that no orgasm can get to, that no relationship will ever satisfy. Friends, you were created for the best and deepest experience that you can imagine. You were created for God. And look, unless you realize that that place is a coming reality one day, someday, that that city is coming, then you will, you will, you will be looking for some city in this world, for some place to satisfy that longing. You will look for some place to be your everything. That place may be a home with some idyllic spouse and two and a half children with a white picket fence and green grass. It may be a city where you live that has the job that you want, that pays the salary that you think you need. It may be a five-car garage with all of the dream cars. It may be a closet that is as far as you can imagine. You will look for some place to satisfy that longing. And unless you realize that it is the new heaven, the new earth, the new city coming down, you will be looking forever. And your search will end sadly.
city of life. And the city of life is the tree of life. These are much quicker. Verse 20, chapter 22, verses 2 and 14. I'm not going to reread them, but the tree of life shows up. What in the world is this tree of life? The tree of life shows up in Genesis 3, and it shows back up in Revelation 22. What is it? I'm put Genesis 3 up on the screen. Then the Lord God said, Behold, this is right after the fall. This is right after Adam and Eve uh, rebelled against God. Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man... And at the east end of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. That's a weird, that's a weird thing. That's a weird thing to read. Because then it just, like, tree of life exits stage left, and you just don't see it again in the Bible. But notice what's happening there. That God promised Adam and Eve that if they did not follow Him, that if they did not live their life under His authority, under His goodness, under His lordship, then they would die. And that death manifested itself in a number of ways. Certainly physical body de- bodily death, but spiritual death and separation from God. God says, if you eat of this, you will die, die. You will surely die, He says. And God, in His kindness, shows up right here in Genesis 3. And all of a sudden you see these angels guarding the way to the tree of life. Because God says, if Adam and Eve, in that state of separation from me, come and eat the tree of life, they will be immortally separated from me. They will be separated from me forever, and I do not want that. That is not my intention. So He guards the tree of life and says, do not come here. In Revelation chapter 22, in the new Jerusalem, in the new city, the tree of life is there. Because God is no longer saying, don't come and eat. He is saying, come and eat. Taste this tree and live forever. Because the people there, they're no longer separated from it. There's no reason to fear the tree of life and what it may do to you. Eat forever, he says. Look, death is unnatural. That may be the weirdest thing you hear me say ever. It's like, no, death is natural. Everybody dies. Biblically speaking, death is unnatural. It was not supposed to be this way. And in the new heaven, new earth, death will never occur again. And so let me just challenge you real quick. The next time you experience a death, and there's that little tinge of sadness, whether it's the death of a family member, whether it's the death of a friend, whether it's the death of someone very close to you, do not waste that sadness. Let it remind you that you were created to never experience that sadness. You were created to live forever. You were created for joy and life. The city of life has the tree of life in the middle because they were created by the author of life. How can we get to the tree of life? 
The way to the tree of life is in the book of life. Chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small. Catch that. Nobody, nobody escapes this moment. Great and small alike. Standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Chapter 21, verse 27 goes on to say, But nothing unclean will ever enter the city, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The way to the tree of life is the Lamb's book of life. The book of life belongs to the Lamb. Revelation has been crystal clear about this. The Lamb at the throne, who's now at the center of heaven, is Jesus. The book of life belongs to Jesus. It's His book. But catch what it says about how we will be judged. It says we will be judged by our works, by our deeds. That does not say we are going to be saved by our works. We will not be saved by what you do. You cannot do enough to warrant that salvation. You will be saved by grace through faith in the Lamb. You just... You just take it. It's a gift. You cannot earn it. You don't deserve it. That is the definition of grace, so stop trying. And look to the Lamb who was slain for sinners. Jesus the Lamb declares, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I am the Eternal One. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. Nobody's going to sneak in, y'all. The only way to the Lamb, to the throne, to the new city and the tree of life is to have your robes cleaned. Is to get your life cleaned by Jesus. You trust Him or you don't. And and it, you know, I try at RUF all the time to nuance this out and and to give you lots of different ways that you can apply this depending on where you are. This passage makes it so black or white that I don't want to muddy it. It just says, you've either had your robes cleaned by Jesus, or you haven't. And there's no good people in heaven, there's only forgiven people. So the question that the whole book of Revelation, that the whole Bible points us toward is, do I know Jesus? Am I in Christ? Have I been washed? Was Jesus slain for my sin? Revelation is saying, come to Him. Come. Come to the tree of life. Enter the city of life forever. It's what you were made for. And this is the last thing I'm going to say and then we're going to pray. You have not found a reason to live your life until you have found something worth dying for. And Jesus offers you something worth dying for. He offers you a future that you can't imagine. He says, right now, come and follow me. And I will take your life and I will do with it what you can't even imagine. It will be hard, but it will be worth it. We're all going to live for something, Bob Dylan says. Got to serve somebody. Jesus beckons you to come to him.
is a good Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that You would come and seal the truth of this in our hearts. I pray for anyone who who doesn't know You and who has not turned from living for self to living for You. I pray that, that they would do that right now. And for those who have done that before, I pray that they would resolve again to follow You. And that there would be nothing in this world that detracts them um, from Your beauty and Your goodness and Your city and Your tree of life. Give us strength for the battle. Let us not turn away. We love You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.